is from the Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34, and it's on page 25 in your Bible in the pew. God is honored as we stand while reading his word. It's chapter 25, verses 19 to the end of the chapter, verse 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padadam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bored them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, so, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the living God. You may be seated. Let us take a moment to pray. O most holy God, creator of all that ever will be or has ever been, our most holy Father, Father, to address you as such is so humbling for me to do so. It is beyond proper words that I can find to express that you are our Father. Father, you have delivered us out of death, out of spiritual death and darkness. You have pierced that darkness with the gospel of your only Son, and you have adopted us into your most holy family through the life and through the cross and the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
O Father, Heavenly Father, what an incredible inheritance we have in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, in you we live and breathe and are eternally kept by your grace of many songs that we sung this morning, Holy Father. Oh, that grace is unlimited. It's immeasurable. Oh, Lord, open our eyes to see even now daily how you are in our lives and are molding our lives for your glory. Lord, open our eyes to see the incredible inheritance we have in and through you. Lord, open our eyes and help us not to go through this life, not to waste it, not to go through this life impulsively, carelessly, ignoring the great inheritance that we have in you. May we not despise our adopted birthright. May we not be like Esau. Help us to make you first in our lives each and every day. May we explore daily the great inheritance that we have in you. Help us by your grace not to waste this treasure that we have within. Help us, O oh God, to know that the talents that you have put within us, as we, we spoke this morning, that those who express going on that mission trip or about Class 301 or all these other ministries that you are bringing to fruition in this church, O oh God. Help us to see that you have given us this time, this talent, this treasure within, that you have placed us here in this time and history, that this is no accident that we are here on 84th Street and 16th Avenue this morning in this age, in this secular society that is in darkness, oh God. Pierce the darkness of this Bensonhurst. Pierce the darkness of Brooklyn, of New York. Use your saints for your glory, O oh God, not only here but across this country. Let us be your missionaries, your hands and your feet, and let us go out with courage and know that you will never forsake us or leave us, but we are more than conquerors in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Nothing but nothing can prevent us from sharing that word. For you are sovereign, Lord. Help us to know, not arrogantly, but with humbleness and gratitude, let us go forward each and every day knowing that we are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of glory. And now as pastor comes with your word, God, help it to find fertile ground in our lives and bear fruit for you. In Jesus' most holy name I pray. Amen. Just a reminder uh, that next Sunday, um, after the morning service, uh, we will be doing our annual um, safety test. So uh, we're going to be doing an active shooter uh, type of, of um, activity afterwards. Uh, as we said, we'll be notifying the police. So. Uh, they don't come roaring in here, uh, but 
Uh, we'll talk you through what we would do if there was an active shooter and do a scenario uh, of that. Um, so if you are in, uh, if you're a children's church worker, uh, at the end of the service, we want all the children's church workers and all the nursery workers, if you're either a nursery worker or a children's church worker, go um, either to the nursery or to the children's church so that you can uh, practice uh, what you would do if you were in the nursery or if you were in the children's church for one of those uh, meetings in a, in a case or an event of such a thing happening. Uh, all the rest of us will be praying that it never happens. But after the service next week, uh, we'll be going through that. For those of you who have not been with us from the beginning of uh, our study in the book of Genesis, uh, which began a little over a year uh, and a half ago, um, we have walked through the first 24 chapters of Genesis. Beginning today, we are going to speed things up and we are going to be at a full-blown run uh, through the rest of the book of the, uh, the 26 chapters that will take us through the rest of Genesis. This acceleration is due to the fact that we are making some uh, significant changes at the beginning of 2020, the decision of our mentoring leadership uh, to bring those changes in January, if the Lord doesn't return by then. And, and as a result of that, uh, the morning uh, sermons are going to be shifting as well. We'll be explaining that more as we move closer to, uh, to January. In order to cover the rest of this book in a timely fashion, it's essential that we keep in mind how this book is structured, what the purpose of the book was, the setting of the book, understanding those things. The author is Moses, the receiver of the divine law and the one that God made the steward of his people as he prepared them to go into the land of Canaan. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty power, with his outstretched arm into the midst of the wilderness. And so the book was written sometime during those 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. And so we have to keep in mind that even as he's writing about the historical events, he's doing so for the people that he is uh, taking care of during that wilderness wandering. Moses wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order that the people of Israel who had been slaves for over 400 years might understand who the true living God was and the covenant relationship that he had with his people. But also to answer the question for them, why were they left in Egypt by God for those 400 years? And so the, the book of Genesis begins with the story of creation, the sinful rebellion of their ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden. The flood of Noah, the development of the nations, all of those are laid out for us in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. The final 39 chapters of Genesis introduce us to the patriarchs and through them 
the development of God's covenant and covenant renewals. The book opens with a structure that's organized by ten segments, ten sections, all of which begin with the phrase that we find in our uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, which is the Pew Bible that we use, begins with a phrase somewhat like this, these are the generations of. The beginning verses of chapter 25 are the end of one of those sections. It's a section that began back in chapter 11, and it ends here in verse 11. So from chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 25, verse 11, that is one long segment, one generation, the generation of Terah, who was the father of Abraham. Verses 12 to 18 of chapter 25 is the seventh of those generational things, and that is the generation of Ishmael, the son of Abraham, uh, by Hagar. And then verse 19, which is what we read this morning, verse 19 begins the next section, and it is the generation of Isaac, the son of Abraham through Sarah. So, and that section will continue all the way through chapter 35. So from chapter 25 through 35, that's all one segment. So that's the way this book is divided up. Ten uh, generations, in a sense, is the generation of, or this is the account of, the King James Version says, uh, and then these, uh, these ten generational things. But ultimately... Just as Israel struggled for survival, first in Egypt and then in the wilderness as they prepared to go to war in the land of Canaan, Moses wants them to understand that their conflicts that they are facing and the rebellion that they have endured in terms of their relationship with the covenant God wasn't something that was new. It had been going on since the beginning of time. And so what we will see even in this chapter that we're looking at, we'll see that continual struggle that takes place between those who love God and those who don't. The people of faith, the people who are not. Those who are of the covenant and those who are outside of the covenant. So as our theme from this passage states, From the beginning of time, there has been an eternal struggle of human desires against the divine purpose and sovereignty of God. From the beginning, this struggle has gone on. It continues even to today. And so as we look at the struggles that we see here, whether it was between Isaac and Ishmael, and Abraham, or whether it is uh, Jacob and Esau, or each of them, we will see that this is an ongoing thing, going all the way back in time. So notice, then, that our, our chapter 
begins with Abraham as a generous supplier to those who are his descendants. He supplies them with gifts. In this, Abraham becomes a type of God the Father. God the Father who gives all good things. Peter mentioned it. Tom mentioned it in his prayer. All the good gifts that anyone receives in this world comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning, as James puts it. And so Abraham is portrayed as a type of God the Father who is generous in giving those good gifts to all of his creatures, whether they obey his covenant or whether they don't. Jesus reminded us of this truth in what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. We find it in Matthew 5 at the end of it. It says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, Jesus is saying that God the Father pours out good gifts to all peoples. Those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Those who are part of his covenant and those who are not. The Heavenly Father providentially supplies everything that we need to live and move and have our being, as we read in Acts 17. So notice that the plain nature of God's covenant as we see it in here. You see, God is a covenantal God. All the way from the beginning, we have seen God's covenant being worked out. He established that covenant with humanity in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve. When humanity violated that covenant, God established a series of covenant renewals. He did so with Seth, and with Noah, and Abraham. He will continue to do so with Isaac, and with Jacob, then Jacob's sons, all the way through to Israel, and on into the new covenant with Jesus Christ. In God's covenant renewal with Abraham, God made some promises. Those promises included that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And so as we look at the plain reading of this promise, it would indicate that there would be many different nations that would come from Abraham as his descendants. And that is just what we have here in this passage, isn't it? The passage begins, verse 1 and 2, with Abraham's, uh, in a sense we call her his third wife, Keturah. And here we read about Keturah's sons. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Each of those become tribal groups or nations in the, uh, in the future. And then we have in verse 12, it picks up with Ishmael's sons who become kings and rulers of tribes and peoples. It says, these are the generation of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian 
Sarah's servant bore to Abraham and, and the, the rest of that section then lays out who they are and, and, and what they did. And then beginning with verse 19, we pick up Isaac's descendants. And so we get Jacob and Esau. Now that's a lot of nations that come from one person that physically came from Abraham. And that's why the Arabic people claim descendancy from Abraham. Because they are, by physical DNA, direct descendants of him. If the question of the covenant had to do with physical lineage, then the whole of the Middle East can rightfully claim to be part of the covenant because they are, by right of birth, descendants of Abraham himself. But notice that the promised nature of God's covenant is different from the plain reading of that covenant. You see, the covenant has never been about physical descendants. In all the covenant renewals, not once has the covenant been passed on because of physical rights. Instead, what we've seen over and over again, the covenant has come by divine promise and divine action. That's reiterated again here in verse 6. It says, but to the sons of his concubines, that would be Hagar and Keturah, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. There has been a concerted effort in the writing of this book to show that God's covenant, through his promise, must be by divine choice rather than by human effort or human will. God's covenant with Noah was not due to any righteousness in Noah himself. Genesis 6, 5-6 tells us this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It doesn't give an exclusion to anyone, including Noah, until we come to the very end of that section that generational section where it states, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That amazing grace that we sang about. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is not something you deserve. It is undeserved. Noah did not deserve to be the person that God would save. He received Grace. Our sin is so great as a human race, as individuals, that apart from the grace of God, we have no standing with him. And then we come to Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was barren. God supernaturally, by his choice, brought forth Isaac. And now here in verse 21, we find that Rebekah is childless. God must intervene again in order to keep his covenant promise. God must 
act, which he does, Jacob and Esau being born. Later in this book, we'll see the same thing with Rachel and at another point with Leah, the two wives of Jacob. They were unable to have children. And God must act supernaturally to fulfill his purpose and his promise. What is true of the patriarchs continues even to today. Our salvation is not by human choice. It is not by human merit. It is not by human birth. It is by divine action. We read in John 1, 12 to 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our sin has separated us from God. Every one of us deserves divine condemnation. Our eyes are blind to the truth. No one would ever turn to the Lord and be saved unless God supernaturally gave life to us even as he did to Isaac and Jacob and Esau. God's divine election and powerful regeneration by the Holy Spirit makes spiritually dead people come alive and believe. God's covenant promise depends on God's sovereignty, God's mighty and powerful work, just as he acted on behalf of Sarah, on Rebecca, on Rachel. So he must act in your heart and mind. However, in saying that, that does not mean that there are not what we would consider to be good people in this world. To say that all human beings have a sinful, rebellious spirit in rejecting God's covenant doesn't mean that no one can do what we would consider good deeds. Throughout our world, we recognize that there are people who are not Christians, who are acting in good ways. They keep the commandments as they understand them. So notice that like Isaac and Ishmael, the good sons in this story, many cultures follow the fifth commandment, even as it's expressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I've known many individuals who were not Christians, but they were good people who cared for their parents or their grandparents. They cared for their families. So notice, again, if we're looking at this covenant as if it's from a physical uh, covenant, Notice the practical nature of God's covenant. For if the covenant was about human beings caring for one another because they are of the same uh, family, then lots of people would be going to heaven, including Ishmael, Abraham's son, his first child, thereby Hagar. So I want you to check out the practical care of Isaac and Ishmael that we see in verses 9 and 10. 
It says, Isaac and Ishmael, his son, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zophar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Now that sounds like a nice, easy thing, you know, there's two sons caring for their father. But do you remember the history of this? Ishmael and his mother Hagar had been kicked out of Abraham's family, sent off away. They almost died out in the wilderness until God showed them a well. They got a drink of water, were able to make it to Egypt. Hagar finds a wife for Ishmael, and he goes off and starts uh, his family. So it's amazing for us to see Ishmael listed with Isaac here in this passage as coming together, the two of them, to do the final rites for Abraham. If the covenant had to do with physical lineage and good character, Ishmael would belong to the covenant. But that's not the case. Notice the positional nature of God's covenant as we see the placement of these individuals. You see, beginning in verse 12, we receive the generational information that's related to this son, Ishmael. You might look at this and see that God has blessed him. God had given him promises when they were at the well, and he, he has the 12 sons that God had promised that he would receive. God doesn't withhold blessings on the earth from those who do not necessarily love him or believe in him. I think of Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. The psalmist is shaken in his faith because the wicked seem to be blessed by God. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped, my steps had nearly, had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Have you ever thought, I'm following God's commands. I'm, I'm living the way that God wants me to. I've, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm part of God's covenant. And this joker over here, my next-door neighbor, my boss, my whatever, doesn't love God at all. And look at how he's being blessed. Look at how much money he makes. He's got a nice house. He's got a nice car. He's got all these wonderful things. He's healthy. Why is it that I have to go through these struggles when they're doing so much and having so much? And the psalmist struggles with that until we get farther down in the psalm. And he ends the psalm, that part of the psalm by saying, until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their end. You see, it's not about the things here on earth. It's about the covenant relationship with God in eternity. So if you're looking at things only in terms of the physical, 
then there must be a whole lot of people out there that are, are, are in the covenant because there's a lot of people that are billionaires today. And the vast majority of them are certainly not Christians. So as we look at this passage, we see in verse 18 what sets them apart, Isaac and Ishmael. It says, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all of his kinsmen. What is this telling us? Yes, Ishmael honored Abraham, but Ishmael did not live in the promised land. Ishmael did not live under the covenant promise. He chose to leave the promises of God, first off to go off to Egypt, and then to move eastward towards Assyria. We find the same thing was true of the sons of of Keturah. According to verse 6, they also moved to the east. And if you have been paying attention as you've gone through this book of Genesis, you would see that in every single case, when the individual stepped outside of the covenant, the text says they went towards the east. It was true of Adam and Eve. They went out of the Garden of Eden to the east. It was true of Cain. He went to the east. It was true all the way through the book. Lot goes to the east. Now, that doesn't mean that if you live in the east coast, like we do, that we should move to the west coast. It is simply a a way of saying they have moved out of the area of promise. The Mediterranean Sea was the west coast. They moved out of the area of promise by moving, in a sense, eastward. They've left the promised land, and they've gone to their own place, to the place of their own choosing. Going to the east is simply a symbolic way of saying that they've moved from underneath God's covenant. But Isaac remained in the promised land. My friends, what about you? What about the people that you know who have left the church? I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about the Bible-believing church, the, the church that holds to the truth of the Scripture. In 1 John 2, the Apostle John wrote, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's become a popular thing in a current generation with well-known Christian artists, speakers, and athletes renouncing their faith publicly. In the past year or so, there's been at least a half a dozen well-known Christian artists, athletes, and preachers who have publicly said they renounced their Christian faith. But you know that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't scare us. This has been happening since the beginning of time. It's important that we see what the Apostle Paul tells us. Why 
we ought to test ourselves to see if we, if we uh, are of the faith, if we are in the faith. Are we walking in the truth? Do we have a faith that goes beyond our parents, a faith that goes beyond our church attendance, a faith that is solid in Jesus Christ as we believe in him no matter what happens in our lives. Well, notice then that the reason for these failures is due to the grand struggle that has been taking place since the beginning of time. I'm not talking so much here about the tension that we see between Jacob and Esau. Certainly, that's there, but that's just a symptom of the greater struggle that is taking place in humanity. The struggle that we read about in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is a struggle that we hear in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage, the nations imagine vain things, as they set themselves against God and against his anointed one? This struggle has been going on from the beginning of time, from the moment that even before Adam and Eve chose to reject God's covenant and to go on their own. That serpent that we find in the book of Revelation was powered, empowered by Satan. That serpent, Satan, had chosen to rebel against God even before the creation of the material world. It is an ongoing struggle, and it is manifested between the covenant people of God and those who are not in that covenant. It is a struggle that culminated at the cross, where the very Son of God was crucified by those that he had come to save. It is a struggle that you are a part of and that I'm a part of. But friends, God got the last laugh, according to Psalm 2. God got the last laugh when he raised Jesus from the dead, when he lifted him up and through him now gives life to us with the promise of even resurrecting these bodies with an immortal body. Oh, how great our God is. So notice the problematic nature of God's covenant in this rebellious state that humanity is. From the start, those who rebel against God struggle to overthrow God, and to do so, they must overthrow God's people. Cain killed Abel because Abel was accepted by God and Cain was not. And that's when the war against the elect began. It continues today where somewhere around 150,000 Christians are killed every year simply because they're Christians. Simply because they name the name of Jesus Christ. The struggle continues. 
So it shouldn't surprise us when we read in verse 22 that the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? There's a common question, I think, that comes from most of us as Christians. When trouble comes into our life, why is this happening to me? Whether it's persecution, the loss of a job, sickness, death of a family member, there is that question, why? And if this world were our true home, if this life is all that really matters, we might wonder whether it's worth it. Like that psalmist whose feet had almost stumbled, he had almost slipped. The reason there are so many suicides happening in this country today is the fact that our culture has removed the fear of hell and the promise of heaven. If heaven's a real place, then people who are the children of God will endure anything so that they might see the face of God in eternity. And if hell was real, and people believed in hell, even if they didn't believe and trust in Christ, they wouldn't be so quick to want to go there. Esau missed the eternal. Esau failed to believe in heaven and hell. And he missed it because his stomach was empty. How easy it is for us to desire the things of this life. What the scripture calls the pleasures of life that are but for a season. And to want those things so badly that we'll exchange them for the glory of God and the promise of eternity. My friends, don't miss out on heaven because you are too earthbound. Don't look at the covenant as if it has to do with the things of this world. God's covenant is not about flesh and blood. It is about the eternal kingdom. So notice the prophetic nature of God's covenant as we see in this struggle. Again, if the covenant were just about the physical people of Israel, then it was only fulfilled for a short period of time under David and Solomon. We look at verse 23. It says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now, is this simply about Israel and Edom? Two nations. For a short period of time, about 80 years, David and then Solomon ruled over Edom, the nation of Israel. But that was it. And not since then has that been true. Plus, there were actually three nations in that womb, even though there were two people, because Israel divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But in the New Testament, we understand from Ephesians 2 that those two nations or those two peoples were those who were of the covenant 
and those who are outside of the covenant. The Jews under the old covenant and the Gentiles. And the older, in this case, according to Galatians 3 and 4, the older, being the Jews, served the Gentiles by bringing forth the Messiah, as Paul tells us in Romans 3, the benefits of being a Jew, or that they have the ancestors and they have the promise. And we who are Gentiles, Ephesians 2 says, have been brought together with the Jews into one family of God because through the Jews, the older brother, the older one, through that has come the people of God, Jew and Gentile together, the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will last forever and ever. Let me share with you the final theme from this chapter chapter regarding the godless survival. You see, many people believe that in order to go to hell, you have to be a horrible person. But that's not true. In order to go to hell, the only requirement is to choose the things of this world over the things of God's eternal covenant. Listen to what we read in Hebrews 12 about this situation. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral, and no one is unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau has become the symbol of those who rather than seeking God, Seek the flesh. Seek the things of this life. He chose the stomach over his birthright. So notice the personal nature of God's covenant as it's seen here. For sometimes, biblical individuals become in our minds almost like make-believe characters. The fact is, though, that Jacob and Esau are real people. Listen to the description there in in verse 27 and 28. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That sounds just like a typical family, doesn't it? You've got two children, they have different personalities, They have different interests in life, and their parents each have a favorite. I'm sure that's not true in any of your families. This could be said of any family, pretty much, in the USA. But notice the precious nature of God's covenant. You see, the issue in this text is not who was a better person because both parents were wrong in showing favoritism and both sons were wrong in their choices. You think of Jacob being the the one of the the covenant, but let's look at, at what it says in verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. If you want my food, you got to give me something for it. 
the issue was not in these two men and who they were. It is in the covenant promise of the birthright. Jacob, even though he went about it totally wrong, understood by faith the importance of the birthright. The importance of the covenant relationship with God. Esau thought only about surviving in this life. So notice the predestined nature of God's covenant. For the New Testament writers understood that this passage was not simply about two individuals struggling for supremacy, not about two brothers, but rather that these two brothers represent the whole of humanity. For that matter, this whole chapter is about the nature of the whole of humanity. We are all like the sons of Keturah. We are all like Ishmael. We are all Esau's. We have chosen to go east as human beings. We have chosen to live outside of the kingdom of God. That's called sin. If it had been up to you or to me, none of us would have chosen to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Israel failed to understand the significance of God's covenant relationship with the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read about our human blindness and God's divine predestination in the book of Romans, in Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's a mistake to think that Chris Gardner is somehow going to heaven because he is a better person than someone else. Billy Graham and his son Franklin are not Christians because they grew up in a Christian family. Look through history. No one has ever become a Christian by being born in a Christian home. We believe only by the sovereign will of an eternal God. A God who looked by His eternal love that He has established before the foundations of the world and said, I will elect these people so that I might have an inheritance for my son. 
We believe only because of the sovereign electing work of God who alone breaks the heart of stone, breaks down the barriers of our lives, and brings us out of spiritual darkness into the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God must set his eternal love on you. And if he does, then even a person as sneaky and as cold as the supplanter Jacob can become a man of faith. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It can be for you if you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. The Spirit of God is always actively at work convicting of sin, wooing hearts, calling you into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you listen today? Will you listen to him? Will you hear his voice and be saved? Or with Esau, will you despise the birthright? the covenant call of God, the promises of God, and walk out the door back into the world that you came from. If you were a Christian, you know what I mean. You know that it was never of you, but that God broke your heart. and God called you, whether it was at the age of four, whether it was at the age of 40, God called you pulled you to himself, opened your heart, opened your eyes, and gave you, through faith, the faith that he awakened within you, eternal life. And so I ask you today, in conclusion, have you loved the things of this world more than the things of God? Have you sold your soul or a bowl of soup? If so, then I call on you today to hear the voice of God, the Holy Spirit saying, let go of the things of this world and come to the cross. Come to Christ. Receive my grace. Not something you deserve, but something I will give freely to you if you will trust in my son. My friends, are you trying to win God's approval rather than resting in God's promise of salvation through faith in his son? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I ask that you, in the grace and mercy that you have bestowed upon many throughout all ages, that if there, are there, if there are those here today who do not know you, that you, in your grace, would open their hearts, that you would draw them to you through that amazing grace that we sang about earlier. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.